I love New York at Christmas, but there really is something about this time of year that makes me homesick. I know. It is such a beautiful time in the city, but I can't wait to get to my parents' house, sip eggnog while watching a Charlie Brown Christmas. Charlie Brown. He really does get the winter blues. He's a sad sack, but it is the season for seasonal depression and Mariah Carey. You can't just recycle a joke from two episodes ago, Caitlin. (laughs) Well... That's fair, but what if I start singing Mariah Carey? Save it for karaoke. From Religion News Service, this is Saved by the City, a podcast from two single Christian women getting into the spirit of Christmas and the Big Apple, even though no one here calls it that. I'm Caitlin Beatty. And I'm Roxy Stone. So Roxy, what do you most miss about being home for the holidays. My mom does Christmas really well. She just does up the house from top to bottom. The perfect tree is like my dad's holy grail every year. So it's like he goes off on a mission to find the perfect tree and comes home and and with this giant tree because my parents have kind of a recessed living room Mm -hmm. um, from from the 70s when lounging was lounges were a thing (laughs) so it's like a sunken in living room but it means that the ceiling is super high so he like gets a tree that goes as high as possible and um and then my mom carts in like 30 boxes of Christmas decorations from the garage and it's like a two or three day event decorating the house I miss that like Last year, I actually did go home early. I went home the beginning of December, and I actually got to help decorate again for, mm-hmm. like, the first time since I was, you know, a senior in high school, and it was really fun. So I, I miss that. I just miss how festive mm-hmm. my parents' house feels and how cozy it feels at Christmas. What about you? Well, I, too, miss specific decor that my mom sets out mm-hmm. around Christmas time every year. I'm sure a lot of families have this. Like, you look for the specific angel on the tree or set of ornaments that are like quintessentially your family and one of my favorite things that my mom sets out is a nativity set that my grandmother gave my mom as a present when she got married and she made it from glazed Mm -hmm. ceramic it's very classic and simple every Christmas morning we would go get the baby ceramic Jesus (laughs) (laughs) Or we'd go get the ceramic baby Jesus and like set him out like he's here. (laughs) At some point, my mom started adding a nail. Wait, what do you mean a nail? Like to hang things? Not that. (laughs) Not a fingernail. Like a a crucifixion nail. Like obviously a replica of one. Uh Huh? She started doing this around the time my parents and I became born again Christians It was kind of like to remind us of the main event, you know, like Jesus's death and resurrection. It was very crucicentric of us. Mm -hmm. I think it speaks a lot about my evangelical upbringing that like Christmas also had to be about the crucifixion. Yes. (laughs) You know, Easter wasn't enough. Um, I don't love it for aesthetic reasons, but it kind of reminds me of that upbringing. And for that, I can appreciate it. Yeah. We've talked before about... Our evangelical upbringings um, and the weirdness of it, but also aspects of it that we really treasure 
We also on that episode then went on to talk a lot about how it's disappointed us over the years and that our alignment with evangelicalism has really been shaken in a lot of ways. So we kind of, we lamented that feeling of the movement that we had grown up in betraying us, but it wasn't all bad. Some of it was good. One of your fellow editors at RNS observed recently that you and I were actually like there for a lot of big moments of evangelicalism of the last 20, 25 years. Yeah, we were in the room for some pretty big stuff, watched a lot of things go down. But even before we were reporters, we were kind of really there for some big shifts and big moments in evangelicalism. So we thought in this episode, it would be fun to recount seven key moments. Seven is a holy number. That (laughs) really have stood out to us as defining not just evangelical history, but our evangelical identity. And I'm sure the identity of a lot of our listeners as well. This isn't a full accounting of evangelical history by any means, but these are really the moments for us that were defining that really shaped our experience of evangelicalism, um, both personally, but more so as a movement as a whole. It's hard to know where to start, but where do you think we should start? I'll see you at the poll. Let's go. So we were both there. Oh, yes. At our respective high schools. Actually, did you go in junior high? I don't remember going in junior high. I do remember going in high school. Mm-hmm. And I also remember being the one who organized the CU at the poll, probably because I like read about it in Brio Magazine, also been mentioned before. And I remember it took quite a bit of convincing to not be the only kid <laughs> at the poll. So let's back up a little bit and say it started early 90s. A student group in Texas really wanted to preserve prayer in public schools and started gathering students to pray for their teachers, for other students, for the school district. Mm -hmm. It continues to this day. It's in multiple countries, also definitely backed by some political conservative groups like Focus on the Family, Alliance Defending Freedom. I don't remember an overt political message when I went. uh, I think I went twice at my public high school. And there were maybe like 30 or 40 kids there. I know it was before school. So Mm -hmm. the part of the the challenge was getting to school at like 7 a.m. I don't know why they start school so early early. But yeah, I kind of remember the sense that I needed to be willing to let other students know that I was going to be there. Like, oh, yeah, this was like a witness that I was Mm -hmm. a committed Christian, that I wasn't afraid of what my peers might think of me. Definitely. I thought of it as a, a witnessing opportunity, an evangelistic opportunity. I should preface to say My fear of being the only one there was because there just weren't very many kids in my school. But I was frustrated by what I perceived as a lot of apathetic Christianity among my teenage peers. (laughs) Uh, They're watching MTV. I mean, that's their first stumbling block. It is. And and I will will bring up another memory from my teenage years, uh, or maybe a little earlier, of... um, 
snapping my sister's Nine Inch Nails and Metallica CDs because oh. I thought they were of the devil. Like, yes. I broke wow. them in half. And, um, wow. I was the worst. I was such a self-righteous kid. My poor sister. Apologies, sister. Yeah, I mean, I think certainly see you at the poll and events like that reinforced a sense of needing to be different from our peers, needing to not be afraid of what they would think. But also it was wrapped up in a sense that prayer was being left out of public school. That was, that was still such a big political football at the time. And so even though we weren't aware of any overt political agenda, it did still reinforce. Yes. And it was part of a broader moral majority conservative movement happening in politics at the time, particularly because Bill Clinton was president, Democrats were in power. There was a lot of sense of like Christianity is under threat. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think it's bad to gather students in that way. I just wish that it had been less charged you know, mm-hmm. like just praying because prayer is good, not because you have to make a big statement to people, you know. And that persecution narrative was really heightened a few years later in the aftermath of the Columbine school shootings, which hit very close to home for me in Colorado. But one of the students that was killed in the shootings, um, her name was Cassie Barnell, and she was a Christian The mythology that sort of developed around Cassie's death was that she had been asked if she was a Christian and she was threatened with death if she said she was a Christian and she said yes, she was, and then she was shot. Yeah, so I remember reading the Time magazine cover story about the Columbine shooting at a friend's house, like getting up early, and I just was, I never heard anything like it. It was, it felt really close to home because of course it happened in a school. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there had been school shootings prior, but they weren't nearly so commonplace as they are now. It really felt like our generation's first encounter with a mass shooting that could happen Oh yeah, to us. That was almost certainly heightened for you, like being relatively close to where it happened. I remember watching the news coverage because it was local news coverage, you know, um, Mm -hmm. in my school library. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. So a year, 18 months later, a Christian publisher released this book written by Cassie's mom called She Said Yes, The Unlikely Martyrdom of Cassie Bernal. And I remember my mom giving me a copy. I don't remember. Mm. I don't remember the contents besides it just kind of recounting Cassie's faith. But certainly this notion that Cassie had stood up for belief in God and that that would doing so would get you potentially killed, reinforce the sense that, mm-hmm. you know, other young Christians might soon be asked if they right. profess faith in God and what could happen if you do that. Later reporting by a journalist called Dave Cullen, who wrote a book called Columbine, pretty much called into dispute the story. Mm-hmm. I mean, in right. part because how would you verify that conversation? Mm-hmm. but it's just, it's important because of how it rose up. Like Michael W. Smith recorded a song mm-hmm. honoring Cassie Bernal. So it was very much in the water. And that glorification 
of martyrs and of dying for your faith. I mean, that was huge even before her death. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I remember reading a couple of Christian novels as a young teen where, you know, main characters died because they professed their faith. So, you know, there was a real sense of significance to the idea of being so committed to your faith that you would die for it. And I feel Mm -hmm. like that was drilled into me as a young evangelical. And I think, I wonder if part of the appeal of those stories of martyrdom for American evangelicals and the cultures that we grew up in was we actually live relatively comfortably. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Almost like if you're not being persecuted, are you even a real Christian? Right. Those stories took off because... Certainly Christians felt threatened by culture wars, mm-hmm. but took the war part a little too literally. It's almost like like a glorification of a type of sacrifice that is probably never going to be required of someone, but you can say that you will do it. Whereas a lot of sacrifices Christians could be making in the here and now, like financially or resisting certain cultural like those sacrifices are not so glorified okay financially very provocative point there's a lot of ways that christians are called to not live of this world that could actually be something people do right now without having to say i would die for my faith okay you would die for your faith would you live in a smaller home for your faith Right. Would you give sacrificially to the point where you actually have to say no to things that you want? Do you have to form relationships with people who you really don't like or who are very othered to you? I mean, (laughs) those things seem harder in some ways, even though that's probably naive to say, but they're certainly more immediate and less glorified. Right. In fact, that leads me to maybe our next really big defining moment in evangelicalism, which is John Piper's seashell speech at Mm -hmm. the Passion 2000 One Day event in Memphis, Tennessee, at which I was present. But one of the really sad things about this moment right now is that there are hundreds of you in this crowd who do not want your life to make a difference. All you want is to be liked. Wow. (laughs) You were there for the seashell speech. Yes. John Piper's seashell sermon. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. That's a tragedy. When he warned this massive crowd of 40,000 college students that that they shouldn't waste their lives, essentially. Like, they Mm -hmm. shouldn't waste their lives on frivolous hobbies like Mm -hmm. collecting seashells. With all my heart, I plead with you, don't buy that dream. The American dream, a nice house, a nice car, a nice job, a nice family, a nice retirement, collecting 
shells as the last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account with what you did. Here it is, Lord, my shell collection. And he actually yes. compares it to the lives of two other people collection. who have, you know, lived out in the mission field and I believe are actually martyred. And he says, that is not a tragedy. That's a glorious story. So he's directly playing playing on the persecution, martyrdom, fascination yeah. at the time. I do wonder what stood out to you from your one day at Passion, the Passion Conference. The rain, obviously. Mm-hmm. It it poured rain. It was in this in Shelby Farms, which was like this big field outside of Memphis. So it was incredibly muddy. It was really gross. There were thousands of porta potties. And I remember I mean we were like we a group of us from my college church drove from Colorado to Memphis. Um, we joined the, all of these college students. We slept in the field on blankets. We were definitely bodily sacrificing for Jesus mm-hmm. at this conference. You were smelling bad for Jesus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. And of course I remember the music you know, the Passion Conference was known for its music. Chris Tomlin, David Crowder, Matt Redman. Of course, I bought a CD and like listened to it on repeat all summer long. Um, those songs, if you played one right now, mm-hmm. I would like be able to sing along to every word. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and obviously there were a bunch of big names there that, you know, like Louis Giglio and... Um, John Piper, names that now, like later, I'm realizing were part of this bigger, broader, like movement that was happening in reform circles. Mm-hmm. I did not know that at the time. But yeah, I mean, I felt so jazzed to be like on fire for Jesus and with all of these college students who are on fire for Jesus. Mm-hmm. Also, it is where I met the man I would ultimately marry mm-hmm. and then later divorce. Um, did you know like right away that he was going to be your husband? Well, (laughs) it was wild because we went together from the college group, but he was like in a different small group. He wasn't someone I had met or run into. And we ended up on the strip together and, um, just found out like we, we had grown up in similar like super small towns. I actually knew of his small town. We played them in sports growing up and we connected at the conference. But when it really happened was like on the drive back because he Mm -hmm. and I took like the night shift of driving overnight. Mm -hmm. He was driving and I was like the co-pilot stay, keep him awake. And we talked like all through the night and it was very like, I mean, we were, you know, we were just on fire for Jesus. He wanted to be a pastor and we were talking about you know, our faith. And we were talking about all of these aspects of, you know, what we learned at the conference. We were on a high from mm-hmm. the conference, you know, mm-hmm. um, and we got married a year later. How about that? I mean, there must have been something, there must have been a genuinely powerful connection. Oh yeah. I don't want to diminish that. I mean, we were married for a long time and I really care about him to this day. And We don't need to get into the whole sad story of that on this episode. Um, But I certainly, there was certainly a strong connection and, but it was, it was forged part of it. It was forged in that environment. Mm -hmm. I mean, our college church was very much 
like that. It was mm-hmm. it was several hundred students. The music was really great. The you know, but it was it was incredibly immersive church. And I get that might not be the right word, but it was this church that was like it took over your whole life. There was small group. There were prayer meetings. There were accountability check-ins with your small group leaders. There was always a male and a female small group leader on every small group. Mm-hmm. There was an idea of like new small groups. Small groups would plant new small groups and we were supposed to be, you know, on campus evangelizing. Like, I mean, it was a very, very, you know, it was, it was a church that demanded a lot mm-hmm. from, from people. And, um, looking back, realizing that this like part of a larger, mm-hmm trend mm-hmm. in evangelicalism at the time. It's fitting and what I would have said was envious that you met your husband at church mm-hmm. and that you met your husband relatively young mm-hmm. because that was definitely reinforced as an ideal when I was 17 or 18. The year was 2001. And a really beautiful, talented, godly lady named Rebecca St. James Uh, was singing about saving herself for marriage and asking her future husband to do the same. mm -hmm. (laughs) Don't react just yet. (laughs) So (laughs) I'm sure you listened to Rebecca St. James as a teenager. I did. She was essentially the go-to if you liked Alanis Morissette, but you didn't understand mm-hmm. the lyrics to the song You Oughta Know, which I don't really think I understood until I was in my 20s. <laughs> um, but certain- I, I will say I did love Alanis Morissette. I did grow out of the snapping secular CDs in half by my <laughs> high school teenage years. So I, I did enjoy By last year, you stopped doing that. Yeah. 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 Um, and actually, some of the music holds up. Her big hit was the album God. And there was a song also called God and You're the Voice that sounded just like Lannis Morissette. But then in 2001, Rebecca St. James became the poster girl for the purity culture movement. Obviously, mm-hmm. there had been mm-hmm. lots of books and you know, speakers and organizations teaching you know, sexual abstinence for Christian teens. What really clinched the deal in my mind was this song from Rebecca St. James called Wait For Me. Uh-huh. And she's basically singing to her future husband, asking him to wait for her, like her body, mm-hmm. to save himself for their wedding night. Right. It was fine for me to learn about sexual abstinence at the time. I think what was tricky and I would say actually hurtful was how that message was tied to the promise of marriage. Like, right. Wait for me was singing to this person that didn't yet exist, but we all knew like would exist someday. And there were all these spinoff materials. Mm -hmm. I remember my Mm -hmm. mom giving me the Wait For Me journal when I was a senior in high school. And it was essentially (laughs) prompts to write letters to your future husband. Wow. And I don't think I wrote it that much. I maybe wrote like 10 letters. 
Uh-huh. I think I recognized even at the time, like, what do you say to someone you've never met? <laughs> like, I hope you're cool. <laughs> but that, that connection that right. was made between abstinence and the promise of marriage is one of the many things that 20 years later, a lot of us would say, that was not a helpful way to teach that. And that set me up for a kind of disappointment Right. And even a sense that God had kind of not upheld God's end of the bargain. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure how you managed to get that message so late. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was a late Honestly, bloomer. I People mean, weren't I remember. <laughs> I mean, I remember signing my True Love Waits pledge card at, I think, age 13. It was for the True Love Waits DC Mall events, I think I was 13. So um, that's really young. It was really young. It was, I don't, I do remember where I got that message. It was Brio Magazine. <laughs> and, you know, I remember it was a card insert that, you know, I remember like the perforated edges and tearing it out and filling it in and signing it and sending it to the organization that was, you know, going to have people who were actually at the event put these I'm committing to save myself until marriage mm-hmm. cards in the lawn at the DC Mall at the National Mall. And yeah, I mean, I remember doing that. I remember I I was recently home cleaning out my desk at my mom's in, in long insistence to actually do this and I remember coming across an ad that I had like Mm. torn out of Brio and like pinned to my cork board or whatever that was like this you know white teenage girl in a flowy flowery dress in a field and it was (laughs) about saving your you know it was like this paragraph of like why you should wait to have sex until you're married and I'd like pinned it on my cork board when I was like 13 years old well it strikes me I mean, I, I remember a True Live Waits speaker coming to our church and just giving a brief talk, and we also mm-hmm. were encouraged to sign the cards, which I did. But honestly, I don't – I didn't understand what that meant. I barely right. – I mean, honestly, I barely right. knew what sex was. Like, I was interested in boys, and I mm-hmm. had feelings sometimes, but I it, it was – over-sexualizing normal teenage romantic feelings right. to feel like, oh, is true. You know, if I'm if I'm attracted to a boy at school or in youth group, is that bad? And then how do I know he's how do you date eventually? Like how do you find out who you're going to marry? Because dating is not supposed to be part of what Christians do either. Right. We're supposed to be courting. That was another big book that came out obviously what, that what time was that period. book I, I, don't right. da- I don't remember um I kissed dating goodbye oh, I don't know if you've very familiar. interesting title it is yeah um you know that was about like courtship and that that that's you know th- this proper way of mm-hmm. that involves that involves somebody. like a girl's parents which oh yeah again I'm like I'm 37 <laughs> I think it'd be kind of <laughs> weird Honestly, for a man to invite my parents along to our dates at this point or to like ask my dad's permission to go on a a walk with him. (laughs) 
Also, that was right around the time that Wild at Heart came out. And I remember reading that with my college roommates who were all part of that church. We like read it together as a house, us five girls, and talked about Wild at Heart and, you know, how this was obviously like women, you know, we needed to be rescued. And this it boggles my mind. But then the next year I took a, a women's studies class. Uh oh. My very secular liberal institution, which you know, <laughs> well <laughs> got me asking some questions. <laughs> and that's really that was the first that was the point where you got on the wrong path that then later led to us working at the very secular liberal institution of Christianity Today magazine. It's a direct correlation. <laughs> Straight line. Straight slippery slope. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll talk Mark Driscoll, the downfall of other famous Christian men, and the first time we learned about the Enneagram. Can't wait. Religion News Service is an independent, award-winning source of global reporting on religion, spirituality, culture, and ethics. If you like what we're doing at Save by the City, one of the best ways to support us this time of year is by donating to Religion News Service. RNS is a nonprofit newsroom and relies on reader support. You can donate through Newsmatch at religionnews.com. And if you like what we're doing on the podcast, let us know. Throw us a rating or review. It goes a long way toward helping get the word out about the show. If you don't email us right away, we're going to stop recording. Just kidding. But we do want you to email us at sbtcpodcast at religionnews.com. We want to hear from you and we will reply. So jumping ahead several years, we both graduated from high school, then from college, started our careers. And both ended up at Christianity Today, the flagship evangelical publication based in the Chicago suburbs. I don't remember our first meeting. I don't remember it either. I think it was probably over like a like a lunch. Do you remember we used to play like games over lunch with the with the young crew at Christianity Today? Yeah, I also remember there were lost lunches. Where <laughs> this was so two thousand eight. Where yes, we used to talk about Lost. Like every Thursday. The show. Mm-hmm. Yes. yes. We'd get together and talk about like last night's episode of yes. Lost and try to decode the meaning. This was like a time when you watched a TV show and then you didn't watch it for another week. Right. We also overlapped in that we both started attending liturgical churches. Yeah, we started time. attending the same Episcopal church together in the Chicago suburbs. And for both of us, right? That was like the first time we'd really stepped outside of an evangelical church and we're kind of like dipping our toes in this idea of high church. Yeah. And I don't know if it was unique to like the Wheaton area or if there was a mm-hmm. broader movement going on among millennials who had grown up evangelical, but certainly we've come to see more and more kind of people who grew up in a similar environment being drawn to a high church setting. Yeah, I'm going to claim I'm going to I'm going to make like a a hipster claim here and say that we were doing it before it was cool. <laughs> now we've got Beth Moore going to a high church. We did it before Beth Moore. Welcome to the club, Beth. I mean, in some ways, I know we've talked about this on other episodes. That was a really significant way of translating my faith as an adult. I think part of what Mm -hmm. it provided was a church experience that wasn't so oriented around my own emotional experience Mm -hmm. and having like a, an emotional high from 
worship music. Like I'm kind of of the mind now that church should be a little bit boring. Like I don't trust a church where I'm not like a little bit bored for like 10 to 20 minutes of the service. (laughs) We didn't actually work together at CT very long um, because I was only there for a year full time before moving to Relevant Magazine, which is a lot of its own stories, um, Mm -hmm. which I won't get into right now. But um, but then we ended up like back together again in 2012 on a project for Christianity Today, which I was freelancing at the time for. But we were assigned to this project together that was a multi-year project called This Is Our City that took us to a bunch of cities around the country, including New York City. Mm -hmm. So we took multiple trips to those cities together. Stayed in the same hotel rooms, would host conversations with various leaders in different cities. We went to several churches in the city, in several of the boroughs. I mean, for me, that was a huge like impetus for moving here was the time mm-hmm. that we spent here. And this this like learning about these movements that were happening in the city, like, you know, Tim Keller's church and some of what they were doing in terms of like vocation. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was this whole conversation at the time about sort of renewing the city. Yeah, I certainly think like you that this is our city project helped me imagine what it could be like to live in a city, but also live in New York City. You know, it was the most time that I had mm-hmm. spent here and it was really exciting to see, you know, groups in different boroughs, really interesting professional lives, like not just the church world, but right. designers and architects and people in the finance world, like mm-hmm. modeling what it would look like to integrate faith and work, which was a very buzzy conversation. Yes. Yes. At the time. And I think in some ways, maybe positively helped heal some of that narrative that we had grown up on that, like, the only way to be a faithful Christian is to be in professional ministry or to do something big and dramatic and very overtly ministry oriented to really make your life count. Right. And then that there were all of these ways to serve God in your vocation um, to if you're in fashion to think about, mm-hmm. you know, the ethics behind what you're doing and also to make something beautiful for God to rejoice in. And this was this was countering in some ways that narrative that I felt like I'd gotten at the Piper seashell mm-hmm. sermon which was really about like your whole life being more about ministry, you know, and that that Mm -hmm. was, that that was the important work. You know, I remember this great conversation with someone in tech who was talking about like Mm -hmm. the significant ethical dilemmas of tech and that there needed to be people who had a background in ethics and a background in thinking about these really thorny questions um, Mm -hmm. that, you know, are questions of morality um, and of human dignity and all that. And I remember mm-hmm. being like, wow, this is like, it's so good that Christians mm-hmm. could be doing that work and should be doing that work. We also shared a lot of meals and like after session drinks with some of our colleagues. Yes. One conversation that stands out to me, and I won't name the two people who brought this up, but we were talking about Mark Driscoll and both of them said it's only a matter of time before he has a very public scandal. 
something involving either sexuality or finances. And I was honestly really surprised. Like I, mm-hmm. I knew that he was a controversial figure, but I had never connected that to the possibility of like a public scandal, mm-hmm. which brings us to circa 2014 up to the current day, which is a time when both of us have been privy to insider information about famous Christian male leaders who would later have a very public failure. (laughs) There's been a few. It was around 2014 when the editors at Christianity Today first got a tip about Ravi Zacharias. I had known him through his apologetics work. Like I think I had read a couple of his books in college and listened to some of his talks and Somebody had seen him traveling overseas with a woman who wasn't his wife or didn't wasn't a ministry leader. Mm-hmm. Someone in the field kind of raised these alarms, but they didn't want to speak on record because they felt like I could lose my job. I don't want to maybe this is best handled internally. It would be you know several years before enough people were willing to go on record and there was enough evidence to have Christianity Today editors report on Ravi Zacharias, you know, abusing, sexually abusing or harassing many women, both at these local day spas and overseas. Mm-hmm. And that was obviously he's he was just one of many kind of beloved Christian leaders who were later exposed to be not who they said they were, to say the least. Yeah, I mean, I think it's been a, a discouraging decade in that sense, just so many revealings. Mm. The first pastor I knew of who had an affair was my college church pastor. Mm. They planted a church in Amsterdam that I almost went on that church plant. And then while he was over there, he had an affair with a woman and, you know, lost his job. And I remember thinking at the time, like I remember being devastated by it because he like he was the one who married us and both of us had been close to him but i also remember being devastated about like the impact on the community and the ways that he was sort of like excommunicated in a way from the group and i remember thinking oh you know at the time i remember thinking like people mess up like we're supposed mm. to have grace in the church you know mm-hmm. and i think it's just it's i i i won i haven't thought about that in a long time and and then later another pastor that I knew and was fairly close to had an affair and both of those I never would have conceived at the time as like an abuse of power. I thought of Mm -hmm. them as like a consensual affair, um, sort of the way that I thought about like Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky, you know, like I, I didn't, Mm -hmm. I didn't see at the time I didn't have language or didn't have like the experience to recognize like those issues, those as, abuses of power mm-hmm. um and the last six seven years that you've been talking about like that's really made clear to me that like that that that's a pattern not just of like sexual failure among mm-hmm. pastors but also like these dynamics of of abuse and mm-hmm. and how that's been such a propensity from the pulpit Right. I mean, if you are put on a pedestal by your church members and your elder board and you're the person who always has the answers and you 
are the final decision maker and everybody reflects back to you that, you know, the church would be indispensable without you. And you start getting invited to conferences and write books. Like it's hard for that power not to go to your head and, and lead Mm -hmm. you to think, what could I, what could I get away with that other people couldn't or to play into a kind of being narrative like yes I'm the leader but nobody really understands me or gets mm-hmm. me and I need mm-hmm. this release to it's it's my reward I mean Ravi Zacharias told one of his victims that she was his reward for being such a good Christian leader and right right I think you're really apt to <laughs> um to compare that to how the narrative and analysis of the Bill Clinton story of sexual abuse, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it, it wasn't, it's more complicated than just saying it was a consensual affair with an intern. Mm-hmm. Like there were obvious, clear abuses of power. Many Americans, including American Christians have started to awaken to the realities of power and abuses of power. And it, it almost feels like we have to allow more leaders to fall before mm-hmm. we can actually grapple with it. Because if we just approach it as like, everybody deserves a second chance. What about forgiveness? People will continue to hurt other people. And of course, forgiveness does not mean, and therefore you can join the ministry again in six months after your private retreat. Right. Where you work on some inner healing. And I do think there's truth in like, they are lonely. It's a hard job, a demanding job. And I do think there's like, it's not just these men's personal failings like it's a structural Mm -hmm. failing that goes you know not to let those men off the hook but there is also like a structural examination that is happening and needs to happen even more you know of really looking at like what does it look like to have to create an environment for healthy leadership and accountability and community for pastors like all of those things are a factor in this in in this sort of um, creation of the mm-hmm. lonely, powerful celebrity pastor. Speaking of celebrity, I cover some of these dynamics in my upcoming book. Just a little, <laughs> just a little plug. But yes, I, to- I t- yes, it's totally not just an individual problem. It's structural issues, and that's why I wanted to write about this because we we help perpetuate the celebrity dynamic that is ultimately about a form of power that can so easily be abused. We've, we've, we've landed our seven moments. I do have a fun one. An eighth one? It's, it's a bonus. Like on the eighth day of creation. Eight is also a good number. This one is is very insidery and I just think it's funny because of the strange Venn diagram of that exists in this of I was in Israel Palestine on a reporting trip and at dinner one night with Donald Miller whose early books we could have and maybe should have included Mm -hmm. in our defining evangelical moments and it was at that dinner with Donald Miller in Israel, Palestine, that he introduced me to the Enneagram, (laughs) which has become a new defining trend in evangelicalism. Yeah. I also remember learning about like the first time I heard about the Enneagram, it was from some friends at church, 
like in 2010 or something. Again, hipster moment. We were learning about these things like we before were, they yeah, yeah. really took off. I honestly could not have predicted that the Enneagram was going to become as big as it did among evangelicals. Especially since it looks like a pentagram. Exactly. So it's obvious the last 20 years have been kind of a roller coaster mm-hmm. for evangelicals. You could say that. So where's this roller coaster going? Oh, gosh. <laughs> we haven't been raptured. The world has not been destroyed by a pandemic or climate change. And there is still some kind of form of institutional church. Mm-hmm. These are big assumptions. These are big <laughs> assumptions you're making. I mean, I actually do think one of the trends will be that, that the evangelical institutional church will become more divided, more politicized. Some of those legacy institutions will get smaller. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also think there will be some new forms of evangelicalism, you know, younger pastors who are thinking about LGBTQ affirmation, who are thinking about ordaining women, um, who are really who are very focused on race issues um, and racial justice. Like I think a lot of those pastors will start their own forms of evangelical churches um, around the country, and I think that will maybe be non-denominational for a while. Maybe they'll form alliances. I don't quite know, but I think that 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 you are going to see some of that happening. Maybe something more grassroots. And less like big and oriented around growth at all costs and less oriented around like this, the pastor as the top leader, like less around the persona and the charisma of the one individual pastor. Hopefully. Yeah, hopefully. What if Beth Moore became Um, like the SBC president? I hope. Yeah, I think that's probably in the the cards. Future, for sure. What if Russell Moore becomes president of like the country? Then I'm going to have to write a lot (laughs) not related. This is going to be a a lot of work for you. If Beth Moore Moore becomes SBC president and Russell Moore becomes the president. I'm going to have to be writing no relation a lot. Sorry. I see that. It's a a fair. And then if if Tyler Huckabee becomes like a senator, I'm going to have to write no relation all the time. I both predict and also hope that some of the shakeups we're seeing around gender and the church and kind of untying Christian teaching from white patriarchal norms continues to happen. I don't think that would happen without women speaking up, um, speaking out against the abuses of power, finding each other online, asking for change and reform. And I'm excited about the ways that women will continue to lead us in the next 20 years. I am as well. And, you know, I think the church writ large, but white evangelicalism, especially right now, is like really wrestling with an incredibly racist past and and, and, a, ra- and a lot of racism in its presence. And I think that those are huge and important conversations. I really hope to see more leaders of color, not just having a voice or place at the table, but mm-hmm. leading yes. the church and being listened to. Those are good predictions and good hopes for a movement that has definitely shaped us very powerfully and that we still feel tied to, even if we've 
stopped listening to our Rebecca St. James albums. Saved by the City is a religion news service production. The producer is Jay Woodward, and the consulting editor is Paul O'Donnell. We get production assistance from Elizabeth Joy Windham. Chaz Rousseau put together our look, and Martin Fowler wrote our theme music. We are Roxy Stone and Caitlin Beatty. Thanks Thanks for for listening. listening.